Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, February the 9th. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. So we'll go ahead and we'll start off um, with our top headlines for today. Uh, Biden warns of GOP plans for Medicare Social Security cuts. When President Joe Biden suggested that Republicans want to slash Medicare and Social Security, it brought howls of protests from the GOP side of the aisle during the State of the Union address. But it also showcased a stunning turnaround for the Republican Party that built a brand on doing just that. There was President George W. Bush's idea about privatizing Social Security, House Speaker Paul Ryan's sweeping Medicare overhaul, and current Republican Senator Rick Scott's idea of sunsetting major entitlement programs. As the President and the Congress launched budget negotiations ahead of the debt ceiling deadline, Biden is not going to let Republicans forget that history. Focused on 2024, Biden sees opportunity in GOP-led Florida. With an eye toward the 2024 campaign, President Joe Biden is venturing to Florida. It's a state defined by its growing retiree population and status as the unofficial headquarters of the modern-day Republican Party. The president sees a chance to use Social Security and Medicare to drive a wedge between GOP lawmakers and their base of older voters who rely on these government programs for income and health insurance. Biden is trying to lay the groundwork for an unexpected, excuse me, for an expected re-election campaign announcement this spring. Leading Republican lawmakers insist that spending cuts to Social Security and Medicare are off the table. But enough prominent Republicans have broached the subject that Biden sees a political opportunity. Zelensky in Brussels urges EU to grant Ukraine membership. President Volodymyr Zelensky says that a Ukraine that is winning should become a European Union member. He argued that the bloc wouldn't be whole without his country being an integral part of the EU. Zelensky made his comments during an address on Thursday to the European Parliament on a rare trip outside Ukraine, which has been trying to repel a full-scale invasion by Russia for nearly a year. The Brussels visit came as Russia intensified attacks in eastern Ukraine amid signs that a major new offensive by Moscow was underway. Zelensky also visited the UK and France on a whirlwind European tour that started on Wednesday. He will already head some with heaps of goodwill and commitments of more military aid. Survivors of Turkey-Syria quake struggled to stay warm and fed. Thousands who lost their homes in a catastrophic earthquake huddled around campfires and clamored for food and water in the bitter cold three days after the Temblor and series of aftershocks hit Turkey and Syria. More than 17,000 were killed. Rescuers continued their race to pull more people alive from the rubble, with the window closing to find trapped survivors. While stories of miraculous rescues briefly buoyed spirits, the grim reality of the hardships facing tens of thousands who survived the disaster cast a pall. In the Turkish city of Antakya, dozens of people scrambled for aid in front of truck distributing children's coats and other supplies. Tyree Nichols' documents, officer never explained, stopped to him. The officer who pulled Tyree Nichols from his car before police fatally beat him never explained why he was being stopped, newly released documents show. Emerging reports from Memphis residents suggest that was commonplace. 
The Tennessee Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission released documents Tuesday blasting the conduct of Demetrius Haley and four other officers as blatantly unprofessional. They include revelations that Haley took photographs of Nichols as he lay propped up against a police car. Haley then sent the photos to other officers and a female acquaintance. The Memphis Police Department wrote in requesting that the five officers be stripped of the ability to work as police. Driver plows bus into Canadian daycare, killing two children. Police have charged a bus driver with first-degree murder after he drove his vehicle at a high speed into a daycare center north of Montreal, killing two children, injuring six, and leaving authorities searching for a motive. Witnesses say that after Wednesday's crash, the 51-year-old driver, identified as Pierre Nye Saint-Amand, stepped out of the bus, stripped off his clothes, and started screaming. He was just yelling. There were no words coming out of his mouth, Hamdi Panchambani said. The driver, he said, was in a different world. A neighbor who ran to the center in Laval, Quebec, said she saw children screaming and crying and watched a mother collapse. The Pentagon says the Chinese balloon shot down off the South Carolina coast was part of a large surveillance program that China has been conducting for several years. The Pentagon press secretary says when similar balloons passed over U.S. territory on four occasions during the Trump and Biden administrations, the U.S. did not immediately identify them as Chinese surveillance balloons. It was only subsequent intelligence analysis that allowed the United States to confirm they were part of a Chinese spying effort and learn a lot more about the program. The spokesman, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, refused to provide any new detail about those previous balloons on Wednesday. The fire chief in Ohio's small town of East Palestine says Wednesday that evacuated residents can safely return to the area where crews burn toxic chemicals after a train derailed five days ago near the Pennsylvania state line. Authorities in East Palestine had warned that burning vinyl chloride that was in five of the derailed tanker cars would send hydrogen chloride and the toxic gas phosgene into the air. They said Wednesday's subsequent air monitoring hasn't detected dangerous levels inside or outside the mile-radius evacuation zone, which stretched into Pennsylvania. Many nearby residents left shortly after the derailment, and others were ordered out before the controlled release of the chemicals because of concerns about serious health risks from it. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who had a stroke during his campaign last year, has been hospitalized in Washington after feeling lightheaded while attending a Democratic retreat. His office says initial tests don't show evidence of a new stroke. Senator's communications director says in the statement that doctors are running more tests and that the center remains at George Washington University Hospital for observation. Fetterman's defeat of celebrity heart surgeon Mehmet Oz in November was critical to Democrats maintaining their Senate majority. Fetterman's campaign was derailed last May when he had what he later called a near-fatal stroke. Philadelphia Eagles coach Nick Sirianni is thrilled young aspiring football players all over the world will get to watch two black quarterbacks face each other for the first time in the Super Bowl. He's also pleased they get to watch two really, really good quarterbacks. There are many storylines for this Super Bowl, but the duel between Philadelphia's Jalen Hurts and Kansas City's Patrick Mahomes is right at the top of the list. Mahomes says he's appreciative of the black quarterbacks who came before him and who helped him create the opportunities he has now. 
Kevin Durant's time in Brooklyn has ended. The Nets agreed to trade him to Phoenix Suns, a person with knowledge of the detail says. The Suns will send Cam Johnson, McCall Bridges, Jay Crowder, four first-round picks, and additional draft compensation to the Nets for the 13-time All-Star. The Suns also received forward T.J. Warren in a deal. The person told the Associated Press on condition of anonymity because the trade is not yet official. Durant was moved just days after the Nets traded Kyrie Irving from Dallas, a stunningly fast end to the superstar era in Brooklyn. The Los Angeles Lakers are trading Russell Westbrook to Utah and reacquiring guard D'Angelo Russell from Minnesota in a three-team, eight-player deal, a person with knowledge of the trade told the Associated Press. Los Angeles is also getting guard Malik Beasley and forward Jared Vanderbilt from the Jazz, bolstering its core around LeBron James in a bid to jumpstart its sputtering season. Minnesota is getting Mike Connolly Jr. and Nikhil Alexander-Walker from Utah, along with three second-round picks, while the Lakers are sending Juan Toscano-Anderson, Damian Jones, and their first-round pick in 2027 to Utah with Westbrook. Westbrook's tenure with his hometown team lasted just 130 tumultuous games. With that, we'll move into some Iowa news. This first one, entitled Quad City Animal Welfare Center, now offering spay-neuter surgery online scheduling. The Quad City Animal Welfare Center has announced the start of online scheduling to help make the process of spaying or neutering more convenient. The center offers low-cost spay and neuter procedures on dogs, puppies, cats, and kittens by appointment only. Spay and neuter surgeries are performed under general anesthesia by a veterinarian. These surgeries prevent unwanted litters, help protect against serious health issues, and may reduce many of the behavioral problems associated with the mating instinct. The process of scheduling a surgery online is easy. Simply visit https colon backslash backslash qcawc.org. The Spay Neuter and Wellness Clinic is located at 6112 First Street West in Milan. Mason City Police Department announces security camera sharing program. Here we go. The Mason City Police Department has added a community camera program page to its website. This is an opportunity for local residents to register their privately owned surveillance cameras with MCPD to assist in future criminal investigations. According to a press release, when officers respond to an investigate incidents, the community camera program can help speed up the process for a neighborhood canvas. Officers will be able to access the community camera program database in MCPD's record management system to see if there are registered cameras at residences in the immediate area where the incident occurred. We know that video cameras can be a great deterrent to crime. We are glad that many local residents have taken these precautions to help protect their property. We appreciate your support in helping to keep our community safe by sharing your recordings with MCPD when we need them, the department said in a statement. And with that, we'll move into our next article from Anthony Watt. This entitled Man Takes Plea for 2021 Rock Island Killing. Man accused of a 2021 killing in Rock Island pleaded guilty Wednesday as part of an agreement with prosecutors. The Rock Island County State's Attorney's Office charged Mason A. Davis, 27, Rock Island, with first-degree murder for the shooting of Keelan J. Sims, 18, Moline on May 29, 2021, in the 1600 block of 7th Street. 
Davis, who was initially listed by police as living in Muscatine, pleaded guilty to first-degree murder during a Wednesday morning hearing before Judge Peter Church, according to court records. During the same hearing, Church sentenced Davis to 35 years in prison and an additional three years of mandatory supervised release once his incarceration is over. Davis must serve 100% of the prison sentence, but will get credit for time served. Davis had the option to have a presentence investigation and a mitigation hearing ahead of sentencing, but waived them on Wednesday, court records state. Present tense investigations are designed to produce background reports on defendants to aid judges in determining the appropriate sentence. The mitigation hearing serves a similar function and can include statements from the defendant, attorneys, and other presentations. A second man, Seth D. Washington, 22 of Moline, also faces first-degree murder for Sims' death, according to court records. The case against Washington was ongoing Wednesday, court records state. His next court hearing is set for February the 23rd. Washington remained in custody as of Wednesday in the Rock Island County Jail, according to court records. His bond is $500,000 cash only. Mason City approves labor agreement with firefighters from Robin McClelland, McClelland sorry, of the Globe Gazette. Mason City Council approved a three-year labor agreement with Mason City Firefighters Association Local 41 during regular session Tuesday. The agreement allows for a yearly cost of living increase in addition to clothing allowances, as well as a repeal of the residency requirement for firefighters to live within 10 miles of the city. Firefighters in the local 41 will see a 5% increase in hourly wages in the first year, adjusting to 4.5% in the second and 3.5% in the final year. A new firefighter with an hourly wage of $25.24 would see that rise to $27.30 by 2025. Employee medical contributions will rise as well from 18% to 19% on July the 1st, then going up another percentage point in the following year. Spouses who elect for city coverage rather than choosing a plan from their employer would pay an additional $100 per month for coverage. In an attempt to ease recruitment issues, the city requested that the residency requirement for firefighters be removed from the labor agreement, but the rule still stands in city policy. Should the requirement hinder hiring at any point, Mason City Administrator Aaron Burnett can rescind it at his discretion. The city also requested to add sections allowing the fire chief to use his discretion in offering hiring wages and vacation packages for new paramedics. At-large council member Tom Toma asked Perry Buffington, Human Resource Director, quote, how many paramedics are we short and how are we getting the word out now that we have this great new package for them? I'm pleased to say we're fully staffed, replied Buffington. We had a great team we were working with from the union. Working together, we were able to tackle some pretty important issues. Other changes to the agreement include holiday pay structure and a renaming of the grievance procedure. Mason City accepts property gift from school district, again from Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. The city of Mason City approved a real estate gift agreement with the Mason City Community School District for the former Madison School property. In regular session Tuesday, the city council approved the agreement that will give that will gift the property currently owned by the school district to the city and Habitat for Humanity for development of residential homes and a park. Currently, the location is home to community gardens and a playground on the west side of the property. 
plans are to build a residential housing on the east side and the city will maintain the westerly half. Madison School was built in 1923 and located at 2620 South Jefferson Avenue. Demolition of the building was completed in 2015 after it was determined the building could not be rehabilitated due to asbestos used in its construction. The community garden was established in 2021. Charts that track COVID-19 variants, vaccination rates, and hospitalizations in Iowa. Uh, The uh, chart, uh, as I'm looking at now, uh, shows 70.6% statewide given the first dose of the vaccination, 64.3% given the second dose as of February the 1st, 2023, and the statewide percent given the bivalent dose was 20% as of February 1st. Total dosed administered for Iowa is 6.07 million. That's from February the 1st. I apologize, that must have been uh, for the nation and 3.16 million for the state. I apologize, I'm not quite sure how I'm reading that. So we're gonna move on to our next article. Hard to read the chart. North Iowa woman charged with arson and burglary A Mason City woman was arrested Tuesday for allegedly breaking a no-contact order, setting a fire inside a residence, stealing property from that residence, and assaulting the person inside. According to court records, 60-year-old Analysia Bryant is being held on $51,000 bond after allegedly entering the residence of an individual with whom a valid no-contact order was in place in Clear Lake at 3 p.m. January 27th. The affidavit state Bryant was found in the bathroom by Clear Lake police officers and admitted she knew she was not supposed to be there. The documents do not specify where the fire was started inside the residence or how much damage was done. They also do not specify what items were stolen. Officers found dozens of text messages and phone calls from Bryant to the alleged victim from January. Bryant also is facing a fourth degree criminal mischief charge for damages caused. First-degree arson and first-degree burglary are both Class B felonies, punishable by up to 25 years in prison on each count. Bryant pleaded guilty to possession of a firearm by a domestic abuse offender charged in December and is expected to receive a suspended five-year sentence at a hearing February 13th. Proposal would remove some regulations from Iowa's public schools uh, from Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau in Des Moines. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill eliminating reporting requirements and other regulations on public K-12 schools. The bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds covers several provisions that a representative from Reynolds' office said will remove, quote, burdensome and trivial requirements on schools. The bill eliminates the requirement for schools to develop an annual comprehensive improvement plan, allow school districts to hire a person who has previously worked as a public librarian for the position of teacher librarian. Prohibits schools from offering more than five days for 30 hours of instruction online per year. Provides flexibility for schools, contracting with community colleges to teach high school courses. Allows schools to teach sequential units of a subject in the same classroom. Loosens educational standards required to graduate and removes requirements for certain instruction. Extends extra funding for school districts that share administrators and staff. This proposal will eliminate redundant reporting, allow greater flexibility in course credits, and encourage schools to offer options best suited to their students, said Molly Severn, a representative with Reynolds' office. 
However, some lobbyists and educational representatives were concerned that the loosening of requirements in the bill would lead to subpar education for Iowa's students. Michelle Cruz, a teacher librarian from Cedar Rapids, said the skill set for teacher librarians is distinct from public librarians, and public librarians may not be able to provide the same education as a certified teacher librarian. Quote, if the intention of these proposed changes is to address the shortage of teacher librarians within the state, we need to have a conversation about the reasons current teachers are not choosing to go on to seek certification as a teacher librarian, she said. The bill also requires schools to offer two units of a foreign language rather than four and removes the requirement that schools include instructions about HIV and AIDS with some lobbyists opposed. House Study Bill 119 passed out of a subcommittee with only Republican support. It is now eligible for consideration by the full House Committee on Education. Iowa County Boards of Supervisors would be able to create or dissolve county compensation boards under a proposal advance in the Iowa House on Tuesday. Iowa law currently requires counties to have compensation boards that set the salaries for elected officials. Under the bill, if a county does not have a compensation board, the Board of Supervisors could serve the same function. Compensation boards would be required to provide data to the Board of Supervisors explaining how they decided salaries. It also includes counties to reduce the proposed salary increase of certain officials, but the compensation cannot be lower than the previous year. Current law only allows counties to reduce the proposed salary increase of all county elected officials equally. House File 75 passed a House subcommittee 2-1. to one. Commercial trucker protections, legal protections for commercial trucking companies, advance out of the Senate's Judiciary Committee. Under the proposed legislation, trucking companies would be shielded from liability for direct negligence in many cases if their drivers are involved in a serious crash and jury awards for non-economic damages in cases regarding crashes involving commercial truck drivers would be capped at $1 million. The legislation does not cap awards for economic or punitive damages. Only Republicans on the committee supported Senate Study Bill 1114, which now is available for consideration by the full Senate. Senator Michael Busselot, Republican of Ankeny, said he believes the bill would protect the supply chain by adding legal protections for trucking companies and also protect people who are injured in crashes. Senator Nate Bolden, Democrat of Des Moines, said the proposal could restrict juries from being able to make whole the victims of crashes involving commercial truck drivers. Judicial nominating, a proposal to remove judges from district court judicial nominating commissions and give the governor a sixth appointee to the 11-member panels, passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Currently, the most tenured judge in the district serves as the commission as chair. Only majority Republicans voted to approve Senate File 171, which now becomes eligible for consideration by the full Senate. Opponents of the legislation say judges bring important perspective and expertise to the process of nominating new judges to openings in Iowa district court system. Supporters of the bill say the judges can have an outsized influence over the process. Last year, Republican legislators approved a similar change that kept the judge on the commissions. Governor Kim Reynolds vetoed that provision, saying it still left too much influence in the judges' hands. Our next article, Iowa officials react to Biden's State of the Union address from Tom Barton of Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Iowa political figures on both sides of the aisle weighed in on Democratic President Joe Biden's second State of the Union address Tuesday night. 
Democrats praised the president for setting out a progressive vision for the country and signing into law major bills, including the bipartisan infrastructure package and legislation to promote high-tech manufacturing and limit prescription drug costs for seniors. Republicans, meanwhile, criticized Biden over inflation, immigration, the fentanyl crisis, China, and business regulations. Biden sought to portray a nation that's dramatically improved from the one he inherited two years ago, with low unemployment, strong job growth, and easing inflation. The president also offered an optimistic outlook about the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Still, only a quarter of U.S. adults say things are headed in the right direction, according to a new poll by the Associated Press and ORC Center for Public Officials Research. Here's what Iowa politicians and officials had to say about his speech. From New Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart, Here in Iowa, the Biden-Harris administration has created jobs to rebuild and strengthen our bridges and roads, to replace the lead pipes poisoning our water, and to connect our small towns with high-speed internet access, Hart said, thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law. Beyond creating good-paying livelihoods that don't require a four-year college degree, President Biden and Democrats have also brought down skyrocketing prescription drug prices and capped monthly insulin costs at $35 for Medicare patients, ensuring that other seniors won't go bankrupt trying to stay healthy, Hart said in a statement. We still have a lot of work to do in Iowa, but like the president, I believe that our best days lie ahead. From Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, For too long, Washington has been creating problems and leaving it up to the states to clean up the mess, said Reynolds, who provided last year's Republican Party's response to Biden's first State of the Union address. As Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders displayed tonight, Republican-led states are leading and delivering, Reynolds said in a statement. The Biden administration has lost every sense of reality. President Biden believes the American people are naive and don't see the crisis and chaos his administration has created. The problems that face our country require new leadership, not a re-election speech. Progress Iowa Executive Director Matt Sinovich. Joe Biden repeatedly offered examples of his success and of bipartisan cooperation, only to be met by MAGA Republicans jeering back at him. For saying some in the GOP want to sunset Social Security and Medicare, Sinovich said in a statement. Biden's remarks were a reference to a proposal by Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott to sunset all federal legislation, including that relate to popular programs such as Social Security and Medicare. After five years to be re-examined, if a law is worth keeping, Scott has insisted he does not want to cut Social Security or Medicare. Biden called on Republicans to stand and cheer in agreement that the social safety net entitlement programs should be protected it appeared most did. Iowa's seniors rely on Social Security and Medicare. They are critical for Iowa families and our communities, Sinovich said. He called on every member of Iowa's all-Republican congressional delegation to declare, quote, there will be no cuts, no privatization, and no reduction in benefits for Social Security and Medicare. From U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, Grassley, who did not attend the address but watched it on television, said it was rude of the president to bring up Scott's proposal, calling it a stupid idea, not supported by House and Senate Republicans. And so the president should not have made as big of a deal out of that as he did when only one senator has suggested that, Grassley told reporters Wednesday during a weekly conference call. This is fear-mongering. I think by the Democrats to score points with the American people. Grassley said Social Security and Medicare are part of the social fabric of America. 
and we have to be strengthening it and extending it for the benefit of our children and grandchildren. He also criticized he also criticized for Biden for not talking enough about national security threats, particularly from China. Biden nodded to his decision to shoot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon as evidence that his administration will act to protect our country against threats from Beijing. Grassley, though, said Biden did not give the issue the justice it deserved. The president has come under intense scrutiny from Republicans who say he was slow to act in downing the balloon days after it was first discovered hovering in Montana, home to one of the nation's three nuclear missile silo fields. And from U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, at the hands of big government, middle-class families, small businesses, and hardworking Iowans are suffering. I believe the majority of Americans will agree. Under President Biden, the state of our union is more expensive and less safe, Ernst said in a statement. In contrast, Ernst said Republicans are working to cut wasteful spending, secure the southern border, and support entrepreneurs and small business. From U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican of Ottumwa, Americans and Iowans alike are desperate to recover from the economic side effects of the COVID pandemic, but President Biden's policies have only made things worse, Miller-Meeks said in a statement. Meanwhile, House Republicans have passed legislation to unleash American energy and protect our strategic petroleum reserve, protect American taxpayers, and put an end to the public health emergency, she said. And this from U.S. Representative Zach Nunn, Republican of Bondurant. I hope President Biden will carry the same optimism he had in the State of the Union this evening into working in a bipartisan manner to solve the challenges we all face, Nunn said. We need a healthier economy, a stronger national defense, an effective justice system, and a balanced federal budget. We also must ensure disasters like the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan never happen again, as people like my guest, Nabi Mohammadi, are still dealing with repercussions and trying to get loved ones out of enemy territory. I am urging the president to work more with us in Congress toward bipartisan solutions that help all Americans. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll move to our obituaries as it's now 31 minutes past the hour. Uh, Dwayne Francis Busca, 45 of Waverly, passed away unexpectedly at his home on Friday, February the 3rd from complications of Myasthenia Gravis. Duane was born on February 27, 1977, in New Hampton, the son of Patricia Susan and Francis Edward Busca. Duane graduated from Turkey Valley High School in 1995. He continued his education, earning his Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics and Chemistry from UNI and his Master of Educational Leadership degree from Morningside College. On July 10, 2004, Duane was united in marriage to Sarah Jane Bruce, at Trinity Lutheran Church in Mason City. Duane's first time on an airplane was after rejoining the Peace Corps, apologize, after joining the Peace Corps and flying to Ghana, Africa, where he taught math and science from 1999 to 2001. He continued teaching math at Mason City High School from 2002 to 2021 and also taught courses in mathematics at NIAC. In 2021, he began teaching math at Waterloo East High School, which continued until his passing. Duane battled the diagnosis of Mastenia Gravis since 2018. He had an invasive surgery at Mayo in July 2018, followed by chemo and radiation therapies, and then managed his symptoms with medications. Duane was a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Waverly and then a previous member at Trinity Lutheran Church in Mason City. He was an avid reader. 
His love for reading was so great, Sarah often questioned if his love for books was greater than his love for her. He created quite a library of books in their home, filling many shelves and making sure all the kids found joy in reading as well. Duane loved working in the yard, mowing, gardening, and maintaining their landscape, all a result of Duane growing up on the Busca family farm. Duane loved his classroom and his students. Even when going through chemo and radiation, he never missed a day of work. He loved baking cookies and desserts with his kids, teaching them measurements and how to deal with fractions. He had a way of adding his love of math to anything. He was passionate about helping everyone understand and develop a love for math, especially his children. Most importantly, Duane was a devoted father and husband. Duane is survived by his loving wife, Sarah Jane Bruce Bauska, who also, on par- who always loved holding his hand. He leaves behind four children, Nevaeh Jean, Corbin James, Micah Jane, and Emerson Josephine, his mother, Pat, five siblings, and many nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, cousins, and numerous friends. He was preceded in death by his father, Francis, in 2014, two nephews, Lucas Bauska and Jacob Strife, and sister-in-law, Aja Bouska. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 11th at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Waverly with pastors Mark Anderson and Dan Garriott's officiating. Visitation will be from 4.30 to 7 on Friday, February the 10th, also at St. Paul's Lutheran Church, and one hour prior to the service on Saturday. Dwayne's body will be cremated following services. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Dwayne Bauska Memorial Fund in support of his children and forwarded to St. Paul's Lutheran Church, 301 First Street Northwest, Waverly, Iowa 50677, or the Mestinia Gravis Foundation of America. Online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com. Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly is assisting the family. Their number is 319-352-1187. From Latimer, Marlene Marie Sanders, Field 90 of Latimer, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February the 5th, at Franklin County Country View Nursing Facility in Hampton. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 Saturday, February the 11th at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Latimer with burial in the church cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February the 10th at Council Woodley Funeral Home in Hampton. Marlene was born on December 21st, 1932 at the Hampton Hospital, daughter of Henry E. and Margaret Dreyer. She was baptized at home on January the 15th, 1933 by Pastor E.H. Grummer with witnesses being her aunts, Matilda Dorman and Emma Menning. Marlene was confirmed at Trinity Lutheran Church in Hampton on June 16, 1946, by Pastor Geo A. Koch. Her confirmation verse was Psalm 37, 4. Marlene received her 8th grade diploma from Hampton Junior High on May 22, 1947. She graduated from Hampton High School on May 28, 1951, and graduated from Hamilton Business College in Mason City on September 26, 1955. Marlene worked at Farmers Hybrid Seed Corn Company in Hampton from September of 1955 until March of 1958 in the accounting department. She was united in marriage to Kermit Sandersfield on March 3, 1957 at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Latimer by Pastor A.T. Kellerman. To this union, four children were born, Paul, Carol, Jeanette, and Anne. The family lived on two farms northwest of Latimer, where Marlene raised their children and helped on the farm. For many years, she raised chickens and sold eggs. Kermit and Marlene opened their home as a host family in 1971 for one school year to Anna Melkilla from Finland until she graduated with Jeanette from CAL. 
They were blessed to celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary prior to Kermit's passing. Marlene was active in Lutheran Women's Missionary League, Lutheran Layman's League, the Cemetery Society, the Latimer Park Society, the Latimer Legion Auxiliary, and several Bible study groups at St. Paul's. She was a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church, the Alexander Facts and Fun Club from 1967 to 1995, Marion Scott Township Farm Bureau Women, Franklin County Farm Bureau Women, Franklin County Historical Society, and was a past 4-H leader of 10 years, where she received the friend of a 4-H alumni award in 1988. She was on the Hampton History and Heritage Club, Franklin County Hospital Auxiliary, and was a member of Branch 2329AAL. Marlene enjoyed her breakfast group in Latimer and her class of 1951 breakfast group in Hampton. She also enjoyed reading, journaling, going to her grandchildren's activities, taking pictures, and volunteering whenever she could. Marlene enjoyed traveling with Kermit. Together, they went on over 100 bus trips across the United States and had the opportunity to go on one cruise. They also enjoyed various family road trips over the years with their children. Marlene is, son, is survived by her son, uh, daughter, daughters, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents and husband, Kermit, in 2022. Marlene's family wishes to send a heartfelt thank you to the Franklin Country View Nursing Facility and Mercy One North Iowa Hospice staff for their amazing care they gave Marlene the last four years. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be given to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Latimer in memory of Marlene. Council Woodley Funeral Home is caring for Marlene and her family. Craig Gordon Ensign, 80 of Clear Lake, died on Sunday, February the 5th at Oakwood Care Center in Clear Lake. There will be a private family service on Friday, February the 10th at Hope Lutheran Church, where Craig was a member. In lieu of flowers, the family requests memorials to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation in honor of his son and grandson. Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, phone number 641-357-2193. Virginia Lou Grimm, 89, passed away with family by her side on Saturday, February the 4th at Oakwood Care Center in Clear Lake, Iowa. Virginia Lou Ashland was born October the 7th, 1933, in the family farmhouse, daughter of Christopher and Vera Ashland. Commonly known as Ginny or Toots, Virginia attended a one-room country schoolhouse and graduated from Clear Lake High School. She married J. L. Grimm in 1953, and they were married for 27 years. Virginia resided in Clear Lake her entire life. Virginia loved Clear Lake and exhibited this strong association by working in many public places. Her career experience included as a high school cook before she started a 40-year career that she was very proud of at the Fairway Grocery Store, working past her 80th birthday. She also worked in a variety of restaurants in Clear Lake, including Whitkey's and the Jack of Diamonds, before spending 18 years at the Half Moon Inn. Family members frequently received comments from someone who recalled working with her. Their comments reflect the influence she was, and in many instances, lesson learned through a firm, respectful, dependable, hardworking, caring attitude. Her other activities included membership at Zion Lutheran Church and her commitment to Peace Circle and many friends. Virginia loved the 4th of July celebration at Clear Lake, hosting a multi-generational family and friends picnic in the driveway, regardless of the weather that started pre-parade and ended post-fireworks. She enjoyed reflecting on leading the Clear Lake 4th of July parade during high school on horseback with her brother, Virgil. Holidays were a special time of the year for Virginia, knowing her grandchildren would be home enjoying her fabulous cooking, Christmas treats, and family games. 
Virginia always loved assisting with the grandchildren and participating in as many of their activities as possible. Due to health concerns, the last few years of Virginia were spent at Apple Valley Assisted Living in Clear Lake prior to a short tenure at Oakwood Care Center. The family wants to extend their sincerest appreciation to both facilities for the care and support provided by their dedicated staff. Virginia is survived by her three sons, grandchildren, uh, and three great-grandchildren. Virginia was preceded in death by her parents, siblings Virgil, Ashland, and June Galloway. Visitation will be held Wednesday evening from 5 to 7 at Ward of Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake. The funeral service will be held 1030 Thursday, February the 9th at Zion Lutheran Church, 112 North 4th Street, Clear Lake. Burial will be at Clear Lake Cemetery. With that, we'll go ahead and we will move to our sports. And in the first article, we have a column here about the Mason City Girls wrestling team. Uh, this is from Austin Hansen. A 12th place team finish at a state wrestling tournament isn't considered noteworthy for many teams in Iowa. Some coaches and fans are even disappointed when their teams place second. Because expectations in wrestling are so high in Iowa, some of the best state tournament stories go unnoticed. Lofty projections for teams and individual wrestlers often capture the attention of fans and reporters alike. As a sports writer that has done many large wrestling tournaments, I'll admit that it's not difficult to be entranced by the appeal of the team race. Sometimes it's hard to pay attention to matches that don't have much impact on the team standings. Waverly Shellrock's first place finish at the first ever sanctioned Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Wrestling Tournament was exciting, but it wasn't my job to pay attention to the GoHawks last week. Without the team race distracting me, I saw how many Captivating individual stories existed outside the top of the heap. The most impressive of those tales belonged to the Mason City girls wrestling team. The River Rocks had just three girls on their varsity team in 21-22. That number expanded to 16 before the 22-23 season. Seven of Mason City's girls wrestlers qualified for the state tournament, and all of the River Hawks that made it to Extreme Arena in Coralville won at least one match. We brought two girls down, that have trained a ton in one year, Mason City head coach Jake Phillips said, and we brought five other girls down here that have wrestled for two and a half months. Everybody won a match. We had several girls win a couple matches. Kylie James and Layla Phillips, the first two athletes to join the Mason City girls wrestling's team last season, both made the state podium. Layla Phillips finished second at 105 pounds and James was seventh at 140. Layla Phillips, Run to the finals was, by conventional standards, improbable. The junior was the number seven seed at her weight, but she still wrestled her way to the finals. Layla Phillips lost to top-seeded Jillian Worthen via 10-1 major decision in the finals. Worthen pinned every opponent she faced in Coralville, except Layla Phillips. She'll probably tell you, but she expected it. Jake Phillips said of his daughter's tournament run, I think she came down here with a mentality to win the tournament. She's a warrior. That's the deal. The Riverhawks tournament mindset might have impressed me more than anything else did in Coralville. I thought Mason City would just be happy to be at the event. Teams that are satisfied with state qualification don't normally win many matches, but Jake Phillips didn't let his team fall into that trap. He ensured the Riverhawks were ready to go and hungry for more than state qualification. What Jake Phillips has done in the last two seasons has been incredible. 
He flipped a program of three wrestlers into a top 12 team in the state in less than 18 months. In a year, Jake Phillips turned two girls that had never wrestled before to state place winners. His five other state qualifiers tried the sport for the first time three months ago. Now the Riverhawks have another offseason to build their roster and fill holes in their lineup. If Jake Phillips has a starting wrestler at every weight next season, there's no telling what his team's ceiling might be. It's also difficult to predict just how good Layla Phillips, James, and the Riverhawks' other 2023 state qualifiers will be next season. But if Layla Phillips and James' 2023 postseason success are indicators, it's not unreasonable to think the Riverhawks will have more than a handful of place winners at next year's state tournament. I was surprised at just how quick things got rolling with some of the girls, Jake Phillips said. I'm just jacked about moving forward. We already got plans in the works for what's next, and it's a lot. Moving to some high school basketball, Tuesday's area scoreboard. High school girls basketball, Mason City tops Fort Dodge 78-57, St. Ansgar over Rockford 67-13, Lake Mills 55, North Union 40, Gaynor Hayfield Ventura 50 over Eagle Grove 34, Hampton Dumont Cal 52 over St. Edmund 19. High school boys basketball, Tripoli over Riceville 74-62, Charles City 73 versus Walk-On with 40. St. Ansgar tops Rockford 73-54, Lake Mills over North Union 67-64, Dunkerton 78 over Newman Catholic 65, Forest City 66 over Belmont Clemmie 42, Garner Hayfield Ventura 55 over Eagle Grove 52, and finally Mason City 62 over Fort Dodge 48. Uh, High school sports roundup, Mason City girls basketball clinches the Iowa Alliance North title. Mason City girls basketball team clinched first place position in the divisional standings. Junior guard Reggie Spots tied a school record with nine steals in the River Hawks' victory. Spots also led her team in scoring with 25 points. She was one steal and two rebounds short of a triple-double. Sophomore Michaela Trask and junior Grace Burning also scored in double figures against the Dodgers, dropping 16 and 14 points respectively. Very happy for our players to see their hard work pay off and experience a conference championship. Mason City head coach Kirk Clausen wrote in an email to the Globe Gazette. We had a great run in the second quarter, and Reggie had a great all-around game with nearly a triple-double. St. Ansgar 67 over Rockford 13, thanks to an 18-point performance from senior Madison Hillman. The Saints picked up another win against a top-of-Iowa conference opponent on Tuesday. The Saints 15-6 overall, 11-5 in the conference, held the Warriors scoreless in the first period, amassing an early 18-point lead. After an eight-point second quarter, Rockford was held to five total points in the second half. The Saints shot 42% from the floor, and the Warriors went 5 of 30 from the field. Freshman Jayla Schriever was Rockford's leading scorer with six points. The Lake Mills 55 over North Union 40. The Bulldogs upset the Warriors in dominant fashion at home Tuesday. Three of Lake Mills' players scored in double figures. Seniors Jody Helgeson and Ella Sten put up 21 and 11 points, respectively. Junior Taylor Vanek amassed 15 points. Stain finished the game with a double-double, adding 12 rebounds to her final state stat line. Uh, high school boys basketball, Tripoli 74 over Riceville 62. The Wildcats fell to 3-19 overall and 0-12 in Iowa Star Conference play with a 12-point loss to the Panthers. 
Triple E was led by Oakley Semoroth, who finished the contest with 32 points and 18 rebounds. Semoroth's Panthers shot nearly 52% from the floor against the Wildcats. And a local score here, uh, a couple of them. Dunkerton 78 over Newman Catholic 65. Seniors led the way for both the Knights and the Raiders. Newman Catholic's Doug Taylor posted a 24-point, 14-rebound double-double. And Dunkerton Preston Gillespie put up 22 points and 12 boards. Senior point guard Max Burt was the Knights' second-leading scorer with 19. Like Taylor, senior Noah Hamilton put up a double-double for the Knights, finishing the game with 12 points and 10 rebounds. Newman Catholic, 17-3 and 14-2 in conference, will take on Lake Mills on the road Friday evening. In Mason City, over Fort Dodge, 62-48, the Riverhawks snapped a nine-game losing streak with a win over the Dodgers. The Riverhawks, 6-11, 2-5 in the conference, are in fifth in the IAC North standings. Fort Dodge, 1-16, 0-8 in the conference, is in sixth. Senior Tate Millsap, Davian Maxwell, and Ethan Roberts were the Riverhawks' leading scorers. Millsap dropped 15, and Maxwell and Roberts put up 12 each. And moving to college men's basketball. Uh, here we go. College men's basketball, Johnson Matthews lead West Virginia over number 11, Iowa State. From Morgantown, West Virginia, West Virginia's recent streak of success is starting to make up for a terrible start to the Big 12 schedule. Kidrian Johnson tied a career high with 22 points, and West Virginia held off number 11 Iowa State, 76-71, on Wednesday night. The Mountaineers, 15-9, 4-7 in the Big 12, have won 5-7 of seven to get their season going in the right direction after they dropped five in a row in January. Three of those recent wins have come over ranked opponents. We dug ourselves a hole, and so we're trying to climb out of it, Coach Bob Huggins said. I think that's a big part of our competitiveness right now. I think that's a big part of why we're playing so much harder than what we played before. We're trying to get out of that hole, and we've made strides. Once you get close to getting out of the hole, you sure as heck don't want to fall back in it. Iowa State, 16-7 and 7-4, and and missed a chance to climb into a first-place tie with number 5 Texas, which lost at Kansas on Monday night. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll look at weather before we close. And our weather today, according to the Globe Gazette, today light snow this morning will taper off this afternoon, but will remain cloudy and windy, high of 34 degrees. Winds north-northwest at 20 to 30 miles an hour, chance of snow 80%, higher wind gusts possible. Tonight, cloudy and windy this evening, becoming uh, clear late, low of 7 degrees. Winds northwest at 20 to 30 miles an hour, higher wind gusts possible. And tomorrow, sunny skies, high of 28 degrees. Winds west to northwest at 10 to 15 miles an hour. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, February the 9th, 2023. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, There are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK, When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.